I don't know why I haven't come here more often. This is great. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction, Grant. It's, it's great to be with you. And as y'all know, Covenant College and Covenant Seminary, we share a, a legacy um, of beginning as both a college and a seminary together in a shared location, uh, first in St. Louis. And, and then y'all moved away from us and got the better end of the deal up here on the mountain. This is so beautiful. Uh, it's great to be with you. But more important than that shared legacy and, 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 and shared uh, uh, location is the shared allegiance and commitment we have to the Lord Jesus Christ um, and that, our, that we are fully submitted to his word and his call in this world that Christ might indeed be preeminent in all things. So I'm thrilled that you're here studying at Covenant College and it's just a joy to get to share with you. I want us to turn in our Bibles to John chapter 4, John's Gospel chapter 4 to look at what is doubtless a familiar passage to you. Uh, Jesus and the woman of Samaria, uh, we'll be reading verses 7 through verse 26. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. But where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to him, Her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would uh, guide now this word read. Make it live by your spirit on my lips and in our hearts. Draw us unto yourself that we might be Those who worship in spirit and truth, set free according with your grace. Do this now, we ask in your name. Amen. Well, it's football season, and that's a good thing for me. We need to get a football team here, don't we? Um, Amen. Sorry. I just, I just did that, Grant. Uh, okay, so uh, I'm an Auburn graduate, so I'm, a, I'm an Auburn Tiger fan. I'm definitely not going to get through my sermon here. Um, 
But uh, I'm a fan of Coach Mike Leach, uh, who now coaches at Mississippi State. Uh, he first started his head coaching career at uh, Texas Tech, the Red Raiders, in between State and Texas Tech. He was the coach of the Washington State Cougars uh, up, up in Washington State. And, and uh, his first season did not go very well. He, he had a two and four um, uh, starting record. And if you know anything about Mike Leach, you know he was not going to shrink back from laying blame. And so he laid the blame squarely on his senior class. And um, he, he did, in typical Mike Leach uh, style, just unleashed his brutal assessment. It was picked up by ESPN. And he said that his seniors had a kind of zombie-like quality, um, that they were going through the motions, that they were acting like everything was as it was always going to be. He said they quite honestly have an empty corpse-like quality. Now, if you were a Cougars fan, that wasn't exactly thrilling news, but if you know anything about football, you know that Mike Leach was telling the truth. But football is a game of intensity, and it has to be played from the heart. But now, forgive me for making the comparison, but, but I'm going to make a comparison to the character of our worship. It's just that the stakes are, are even higher. The only thing worse than being a zombie on the football field is being a zombie in the worship of our God. Jesus tells us here he's, he's not seeking zombies. He's not just aiming to inform our minds, but transform our lives. That we might offer up our true selves to the glory of our God. In accordance with His grace. Now that reorientation of our heart is at the heart of the conversation that Jesus is having with the Samaritan woman. We, we know this story and yet we sometimes forget what Jesus is aiming at. He's aiming at turning our lives to Him completely. And for that to happen, we have to gain a true awareness of who we are. That's the first step towards true worship, we have to know why we're thirsty, why we need the Lord our God. And this is a remarkable interaction on lots of different levels, right? Jesus is talking to a Samaritan. They're in Samaria. There's lots of conversation about that. Headed back to Galilee. Jesus is saying, give me a drink to this woman. Doubtless, that would have made him ceremonially unclean. Not only to talk to a Samaritan, but especially to mingle those utensils. Jesus alone, verse 7, the disciples had gone out to get food for um, their travel that, that day. But the woman is also presumably alone, coming to the well at noon, sixth hour, in the middle of the day. Which likely indicates some degree of shame or embarrassment. Perhaps she was a social outcast even among her fellow Samaritans. Because otherwise, why wouldn't she have come to the well at well, times that other women come to the well in the morning or late in the day, avoiding the midday heat. But here she is all alone, by herself at the well, talking to Jesus, who also is alone. And if we look back in John chapter 3, we see Jesus there talking to Nicodemus, another interesting figure who comes to see Jesus in the middle of the night. But he's the ideal religious leader in uh, Jerusalem, a man theologically trained, a leader among the Jews. 
She's everything different than Nicodemus, a woman, a Samaritan, a social outcast. And yet, what do we see Jesus doing? Welcoming them both, helping both of them know that they need Jesus. But, but that's just the extra stuff. Jesus' point is the water, isn't it? Right? The, the source of living water. Uh, he says, there, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He's shifting the meaning of this water from that which quenches naturally occurring thirst into a metaphor, right, of the life-given, sanctifying and satisfying work of our God unto everlasting life. This is the water that Jesus was offering. She's not exactly getting it, though. She says, sir, give me this water so I don't have to come back here and do this work. I have to come back here and draw this water. Something's in the way. She hadn't properly identified who Jesus was and what he was offering to her. Something's blocking that connection. And as we learn in a moment, it's connected to her life history. And so, what does Jesus do? He faithfully, as the Proverbs teach us, wounds her. He faithfully wounds her. Go call your husband. But of course, she had no husband, verse 17. That response was technically right, wasn't it? It just wasn't the whole story. And so Jesus goes on, well, you have, you've had five husbands, and the one that you're now with is not your husband. Jesus' remark was both stunning, how could he know that? But also painful, and it begs the question, why would he say that to her? It doesn't seem like wise pastoral guidance. New Testament commentator D.A. Carson, I think, is right when he says that Jesus' comment was designed to help the woman come to terms with the nature of the gift that he was offering, that he is offering. He's faithfully wounding her so that she might gain a thirst for Jesus. And friends, Jesus has to do that in all of us, doesn't he? Jesus is not just aiming at why are you thirsty. He wants us to see that he's the answer to that thirst. He has to put his finger on our lives, our stories, our prejudices, our agendas, our, our sin, the, the idols that, that we've given ourselves over to. Just like the woman, we have to come to that place where we see how Jesus intersects with our story of sin and brokenness. And it's interesting, just at this point, just when she's gaining awareness that the conversation takes this hard right turn, verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Let's talk about this. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Who's right? Now, some people think that the reason why the woman is changing the subject of the conversation is because she wants to avoid this topic of her messy relationship with men, I think it's just better and simpler to recognize that what she's doing is what any Samaritan might have done had they had the chance to talk with a prophet from Jerusalem. She's just bringing up the long-standing point of contention between the Samaritan people and the 
um, the, the Jews, the location of proper worship. And if you don't know it, the Samaritans have a complicated history. They weren't exactly a pure remnant of the northern kingdom. They were a mixed people that the Assyrians had brought into that region. And they had a shared history with the people of Israel. They had held on to parts of the Bible. The first five books were the only parts of the Bible that they had held on to, and so they didn't buy the explanation for why worship needed to happen in Jerusalem. They rejected worship in Jerusalem. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim. That's where they were. This is the debate that Jesus is raising, and Jesus' response to her is utterly fascinating. He takes a side in the debate, doesn't he? He basically says, you're wrong. The Samaritans are wrong. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But for in doing this, Jesus is saying that the object of Samaritan worship was actually unknown to them. It did not matter how sincere they were. Their worship was misdirected. And in doing so, Jesus is saying that in order for us to worship properly, we not only have to gain an awareness of who we are, why we need Jesus... But we also must worship in the right way. That there's a right way to do this. And it's a matter of life and death. Salvation is from the Jews. Now before you roll your eyes too much at the obvious point that I'm making, I want to share a story that I think will comically illustrate this truth. When I was a teenager, maybe 13 or 14, I had a friend who invited me to go water skiing. I grew up in the panhandle of Florida, and we were skiing on Lake Mystic. It was the first time that I got to water ski, and I didn't know how to do it. And so he was showing me how to wakeboard. That was the first thing that we did. And he was quite good at the wakeboarding and could do all sorts of tricks, and I was sort of amazed at his skill. When it was my turn, I was just happy that I was able to get up. And after a few, you know, minutes, I was able to crossed back and forth over the wake, and I got more and more comfortable, and then I began to think, now what tricks might I do? And as one without a fully developed prefrontal cortex, as one might do, I, I proceeded to take the triangular space created by the ski rope and the, well, ski handle, and I took that space and I put it squarely around my neck. Yes, I did that. Not a fully developed prefrontal cortex. And my friend's mom flipped out. I mean, she immediately stopped the boat. Thankfully, I didn't break my neck. I'm still here. Um, and, and she gave me a stern talking to. Um, but the lesson, of course, is even when you're having fun, even when you're water skiing, there are the right things to do with the ski rope and the wrong things to do with the ski rope. Certainly not putting it around your neck while you're being pulled behind the boat. And it's a matter of life and death. That there's a right way and a wrong way to do certain things. But we're fooling ourselves if we ignore that truth. In the same way, Jesus is declaring that worship is a matter of truth. Now, according to Jesus, worship must be shaped by the revealed word of our God. But that's not even the whole story, not even the most important part of the story that Jesus wants to tell us about here. Because it's not just about what we do or where we are, it's about who we are. Who we are. Jesus says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain 
nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Jesus is saying something's changed with the advent, with his advent, the geography of worship, the priority of Israel is, is changing. There's a shift in the economy of God's grace. The net is widening as to what's possible and who's invited when it comes to worshiping God. He says in verse 22, uh, 23 that the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. This really is the key phrase. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What does he mean? God, God is spirit. It's possible to take this as simply a reference to God's immateriality. God is a spirit. He, he has no body like we do. We, we have a soul, a spirit. There is doubtless some correspondence that that may be what Jesus is getting at, but I think it's more, given the broader context of chapter 3 and his conversation with Nicodemus, I think that Jesus is getting at the, the unique divine agency of our God. God is love, God is light, God is spirit. This is a reference to the divine operation of our God. The divine agency of our God, doing what only our God can do, our lives must be impacted, affected by that divine agency if we are to worship authentically. Our lives must be changed by that grace if we are to give up our true selves to, to the Lord. Which brings us to Jesus' second point. God is spirit and those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit. Nope, He says more than that, doesn't He? God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And you grammarians know that that preposition is governing both of those words. It's one idea, not two. It's not in spirit and in truth. It's in spirit and truth. Which is a reference here, I think, to that which is authentic or genuine or in reality. Our worship must not only come from a place where we have been changed set free according to that grace and spirit operation in our own hearts, but it must be authentic and genuine. It must come from our inner selves that has been dramatically transformed. Funny story that I think makes that point. My wife, we lived for 19 years in San Antonio, as Grant just uh, mentioned a moment ago, and we loved the city of San Antonio. And um, a few weeks ago, my wife was returning from the city back to St. Louis, and she was checking a bag at the airport, and uh, when she was uh, submitting her bag, the, the attendant flagged it as being overweight. And if you've ever had that happen to you, the attendant's going to make you open up your bag so that you can reveal what's in there. And she opened up the bag, and what he found, the bag was stuffed with tortillas from San Antonio. <laughs> you, you can't get them in St. Louis the way we like them. And so we... Uh, well, we bring the tortillas back with us, and, and it was quite funny, and he, you know, laughing at the spectacle of all of it, and my wife was like, what's he going to do? Um, he, he, the, the attendant said, don't worry, this happens all the time. <laughs> and at that moment, it was like this great moment of relief, because now we're 
we're part of the group. Right? This is, this is what you do if you're a true San Antonio and you happen to move away. You become a tortilla smuggler. <laughs> because you can't get them anywhere else. So it's, it's a secret for us San Antonians. Um, but, but it really reflects that passion, that, that authentic, genuine experience of the place that you love. That's, that's what Jesus is getting at here. To be a true worshiper, we must worship as those who've experienced not only transforming work of the Spirit, but in such a way, to such a degree, that we now are carriers of that Spirit in the truest part of ourselves, and we can't contain it. It has to get out. It has to go forth in a genuine offer of worship. This is what it means to become a true worshiper of our God, to have experienced the work of our God and His grace so much, to such a degree, that that we want to give ourselves up unto Him. That, That means coming to Jesus is not about some therapeutic release. It's, it's not about it's, it's not about being set free to, to be an autonomous self. It's, it's being set free to be a true worshiper. To be truly directed and formed by Him. She's beginning to put the pieces together, isn't she? But verse 25 and 26, she, 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 she's... I know that the Messiah, this is about the Messiah stuff, right? This is about that stuff. I, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And, and here Jesus does what he sometimes doesn't do among the Jews. He says, I who speak to you am he. This is it. This is the story. This is the grace. I am the water. Drink. And friends, Jesus is saying that to all of us. This is why worship in Jerusalem no longer matters. Why it has been transcended because someone greater than the temple is now here. It is Jesus alone who makes our worship possible and true. It does my heart so much good to see you here. To see that you want to follow Jesus, that you want to walk in His grace, that, that you want to carry the good news out to this world. But, but let's not forget that the first thing, the first thing He summons from us is worship. Rest in Him. Give yourself to Him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for summoning us to yourself, that we might see in you our abiding delight and joy. We pray that we would bring our true selves to you, that we would, Lord, turn away from all of those broken, leaky cisterns which cannot quench our thirst, and find our way back to you in accord with your word, that, Lord, deeply transformed and changed by your Spirit. 
Would you be gracious and do that work among us, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.